Welcome, listeners, to Out of the Box with your host, Jonathan Russo. As usual, today we'll be continuing our series through the Marxist lens with Professor Clyde Barrow. To say race and ethnicity is dominating the news would be the understatement of all time. From my cursory understanding of Marxist theory, I believe he had a lot to say about race. To me, Marx was a sort of cosmic humanist. He really didn't care about race, nationality, or religious beliefs. He saw humanity as a living organism on the planet, but one divided into two by economic differences, the exploited and the exploiters. I think Marx postulated that the exploiters, in this case, the capitalist class, would do anything and everything to divide the exploited. So they would not focus on the exploiters dominating their lives. One of the best ways to divide people is by race. I work out in a small gym on a small island. Occasionally, I look out the window and see the kindergarten class at play. The four and five-year-olds of every race and ethnicity just scream and run around, engage each other completely at ease. Someone will later have to make them racially and ethnically aware and emphasize the differences. When that happens, who benefits? We will, of course, ask that question today of Professor Clyde Barrow, and hopefully he will tell us what Marx thought about race and ethnicity. Professor? Good morning. You raise a really interesting topic, particularly with respect to Marxism. Uh, I know that typically when we talk about Marx and, and, and Marxism, the focus is on the concept of class and class struggle and, and not so much on race. And in fact, o- over the years, many people have criticized Marx and Marxism for sort of being blind to the issue of race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is that uh, Marx did discuss race. And as we sort of enter into the third version of his collected works, there's some really good books starting to be released now, focusing on the issue of what's sometimes called black Marxism. Uh, focusing on the issue of race within Marx and how he sought to address it. And just, I guess, a kind of a a place that I would start is at the very end, near the very end of of Das Kapital, which is, of course, Marx's great work on economics at the end of volume one. He actually has an entire chapter on colonialism, uh, which is often missed. And what he points out is that the origins of capitalism occur you know, on the basis of, of race and colonization, that the capital that created, that, that sort of fueled the growth of capitalism in Western Europe was pillaged from the New World, from the indigenous people. Uh, later, the, the cotton, which fueled the textile industry in England, uh, was built on the backs of slavery. And Marx wrote extensively on uh, the U.S. Civil War as a journalist. Uh, Later, that cotton came from Egypt. Of course, we know about the Dutch and English East India companies, which are crucial to the origins of capitalism, uh, which was built on the backs of of Asian labor in places like India and Indonesia. So there is a a lot to be said on race. And in fact, as as we talked about in the last episode, uh, there's a great deal in Marx, which which suggests that capitalism is not just built uh, on the backs of labor, but in many respects, it's built on racism, that it's embedded within the very system and always right. has been. And as you mentioned, partly right. uh, as a basis for extracting surpluses to to fuel the origins of capitalism, but also, as you point out, has been used by ruling classes consistently as a way to divide and splinter workers and to sort of keep them focused on fighting with each other for the crumbs that fall from the table, rather than focusing on the class struggle uh, which is against the ruling class. Well, one of the 
examples of that that comes to my mind, and of course, please correct me here where where I misspeak, but is is the American um, antebellum South. Uh, there you had a situation where um, they obviously the slaves were the most exploited class, but the poor, impoverished white working class that that was in a, that 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 existed around them was hardly much better than the slaves. They hardly had anything. And the plantation owners owned everything. The one percenters of the time dominated the economy at, at horrific levels. But yet they were able to divide the poorest of the poor working class whites uh, by turning them against the, the African-Americans uh, in, in the South. I mean, if that isn't an example of brilliant capitalist you know, exploitation, I don't know what is. Yeah, and you know, in the United States, especially, uh, not just race, but ethnic rivalries uh, have been used very consciously and very explicitly. Uh, for example, bringing in Polish immigrants who can't speak English into the coal mines to break coal strikes. How about to demolish Donald Trump's tower? The Polish workers that didn't speak English demolished a building that Trump built on in New York City. And when they went over there, they found these people had no health benefits. They had no safety training whatsoever. They were completely exploited. They didn't even speak English. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's been a very common tactic that's been used. I do want to touch on some bigger theoretical issues, though. Uh, and it, one of the most difficult is you start with the, the concept of race itself you know, and where that comes from, because biologists, you know, are very vocal in telling us that there is only one race on this planet, and it's called the human race. So where do all these, that, that skin color is just a skin color, right? It, it's just, you know, white people turn brown when they stay in the sun too long. Uh, so where do we get these sort of political distinctions? And, and what we know is that race is actually a social and political construct that is developed after the fact to rationalize exploitation uh, and divisions within the working class. I, I give you a very simple example of this or a couple of examples. Uh, in the antebellum South, for example, well, even in after the, the Civil War, there were very elaborate laws in the United States and, in fact, all over the Caribbean region through the Caribbean islands into Brazil and, and places like this, Mexico, laws which were designed to construct race through legal mechanisms. And this would take us kind of into critical race theory if we want to talk a little bit about that. So, for example, what did it mean to be white? Well, what it meant to be white was you could be no more than one sixteenth black. So if your great-great-grandfather or mother was African-American they would, and no one else, they would consider you white. But if you're a one-eighth black, if your grandfather or grandmother was black, then you were considered black. So the reality is the law had to create and construct this notion of whiteness, blackness, through these very elaborate legal mechanisms. And interestingly, Every classification within that, such as, you know, the term was a, a quadroon, an yes. octagoon, right? yep. depending on the percentage of blackness. Every class of, quote, blackness or whiteness had different rights under the law in terms of being allowed to vote, to own property, to intermarry with someone. Uh, of course, miscegenation or 
marriage across races was considered illegal in, up until the 1960s in the United States. And, and, and you could even go, for example, it's no accident that in about the 1870s, 1880s, you see social Darwinism emerge as an ideology about the survival of the fittest, which was very much linked to race in places like England and the United States, because this was the high point of European colonialism. Uh, one had to construct a political ideology to rationalize why Africa, India could be kept in a position of political and economic subordination. And as a consequence, you know, governments and ruling classes will go to great lengths to justify and rationalize the concept of race right. uh, is that as a basis for distinguishing between people in terms of their rights. I don't know if you've ever heard of the doctrine of Ham. Yes, I have. My grandfather, who was a very religious man, told me all about this. That was a, some justification he used in the Bible for, yes. for explaining racial theory. My grandfather, and, it was it was shocking to me. I was and like, it is why there is a American Baptist Association and a Southern Baptist Association, because the Baptist Church in the Southern states uh, was pro-slavery. As the Civil War sort of approached, Baptist theologians actually had to start creating a theological and biblical rationalization to justify race. And just to tell you very quickly, and it's being debated even today in the Baptist church, they still haven't officially abandoned this doctrine. Essentially what it meant was that after the so-called great flood, you know, and Noah, there's only a few passages in the Bible, so you can make up what you will. But essentially, Noah and one of his sons, Ham, had a falling out. You know, there's nothing right. in the Bible that really tells us what this was, except that, you know, at the end of the flood, supposedly each of Noah's sons took their family to a different corner of the earth. One went to Asia, one went to Europe, one went to Africa. The one that went to Africa was Ham, the one that Noah had a falling out with, and he cursed him yep. uh, in, and all of his children in perpetuity forever. And so that became the biblical basis for the Baptist church to argue that blacks and Africa was essentially cursed continent. And that became the biblical rationalization for slavery and racism. I had heard of that. So in other words, the capitalist class in their desire to exploit uh, labor, whether or indigenous labor or any labor, will bring in the church to justify it too. That's how they came with cross and the swords to you know, wipe out the indigenous American population, population of the Americas using God and, and gold as a shield for their, their behavior? You know, religion uh, is a very powerful component of political ideology. It always has been. Right. Uh, there's always been a close relationship between church and state, even if in the United States they're formally separate. Uh, and, and there's always a political component. Of course, the power of religion uh, is you know, people are in church on Sundays, at least they used to be, and they're hearing from what they consider to be an authority. And if you can sanction racial distinctions as biblical and in, you know, the will of God, or as you did in social, in social Darwinism, claiming that racial distinctions <clears throat> were part of the natural order and the survival of the fittest and the competition between species, uh, then you have a very powerful ideology which says that Racial distinctions are not just this social construct we created after the fact to justify exploitation. They are, in fact, embedded within nature and within the laws of nature. There's nothing you can do to change that. And, of course, if you can convince the victims of those ideologies of the truth of this, 
uh, so much the better from the standpoint of the ruling class. Remember that in the Old South, African Americans were compelled by law to attend Baptist church with their owners or the Episcopalian or the Methodist, whichever they went to. So they had to sit there and listen to this and, and have it inculcated into them. I didn't I didn't know that, that I didn't understand that. Um, so once in a while, the capitalist class, the one percenters seem to um, be very happy to embrace uh, uh, racial theory or whatever um, on the positive side. Like, you know, if you're a pro golfer and you know, you're of color, uh, you can you, you know, you can make more money than anybody alive. If you're a football, basketball player, a musician, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's any any discrimination when the capitalist class wants to be entertained by sports or singing or acting, you know, of, of uh, regarding race. How does that happen? Well, you just put it, it's about in, being entertained uh, and, and keeping people distracted. But, but I would suggest that there is a, a sort of a deeper contradiction uh, in liberal liberalism, uh, in Western liberalism. You know, one of the most obvious and striking contradictions theoretically is if we go to the Declaration of Independence, a statement that all men are created equal. Yeah, that's a basic component of liberal political theory going back, you know, to Thomas Hobbes, to John Locke, to, to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And yet something like slavery uh, or any kind of colonial exploitation stands in stark contrast to that very fundamental principle of liberalism. And how do you reconcile uh, the two poles of that contradiction? Well, one way that that's been done, as we've already talked about, is that you describe other, quote, non-white peoples as less than human, right? They're not men, uh, therefore they don't fall within the rubric of all men are created equal. That only applies to whites. But that's still a difficult thing to sustain over a long period of time because it's so blatantly and obviously not true, right? As we talked about last, last week, there's some things that just slap you in the face as so obviously untrue that you can't sustain that idea. So there is always this constant pressure from within liberal capitalism to sort of make good on this promise. And, and even Marx argued, you know, that, that socialism is in some respects the fulfillment of the promise of liberalism, right? You said all men are created equal and then you made us all unequal Socialists want to realize that ideal in practice, not just as a legal principle. I think that that is always present within liberal versions of capitalism, that you, know, you have to live up to your own ideals, and that creates the constant political pressure to move further to the left in order to put that principle into practice. Uh, so it's not, there's certainly some monetary component to that. You know, if, if capitalists see a new market, they're going to enter that market regardless of whether it's, you know, black, brown, yellow or white. Right. Uh, but I think there is a cultural and ideological component that is always in the underbelly of liberal capitalism, the sort of pushing to undermine these racial constructs. In the current Black Lives Matter and uh, awareness of critical racial theory in the United States, is Marxism playing a role in that is it, or is it is it really subsumed in the background? Yeah, it's kind of one of those yes and no uh, answers. Uh, there are actually different strains of critical race theory. Uh, if I can just go through it very quickly. Please. Uh, let, let's first of all start that the basic premise of all critical race theory 
is that racism is embedded in our legal, social, economic, uh, and political institutions. It's not an individual attitude. And let me give you a simple example. Uh, we've probably all watched Gone with the Wind at, at mm -hmm. some point in our lives. Uh, and as we remember, Scarlett O'Hara had a great deal of affection for the house slave Mammy. Yep. Uh, and we might say, well, if you look at her interactions with Mammy, it was very loving. It was very kind. It was very generous. You would say Scarlett O'Hara's character was not a racist as an individual in terms of her attitudes. What critical race theory would say is it really doesn't matter because there's one thing that her attitude doesn't change. And it's the fact that Mammy is still a slave right. and that no matter where she goes outside of that household, she will be treated as a slave for purposes of the law. Even within that attitude in the household, she is still exploited as a slave and used as a slave, has no freedom, can't vote, has no rights under the law, et cetera, et cetera. And so what critical race theory argues is even if people had non-racist attitude. You may be the nicest non-racist person on the planet. Your attitude doesn't change anything about the racism that is embedded in our legal and political institutions. So that's the basic common point within critical race theory. And one of the reasons conservatives are so disturbed by this, of course, is that if critical race theory means you have to change the institutions you have to change the law. You have to change economic relationships in order to eliminate the racism that is embedded within them. So now what role has Marx played in this? There's kind of a long history. If you go back to the 1970s, there was a thing called critical legal studies, which was Marxist inspired and it, it made the same argument only with respect to labor relations and class. Uh, that was later picked up by critical gender studies who made female lawyers made the same point about the status of women and how that inequalities were embedded within the law. And then people studying race picked it up and you got critical race theory. Now, critical race theory originates primarily in law schools among lawyers who were looking at the law, although with time it has gravitated out. You now have sociologists who are critical race theorists, people in education departments doing teaching pedagogy, basically arguing, well, it's not just the law, it's embedded in our social relationships, it's embedded in our schools. Some of that can be traced back to Marxist origins, some of it can't because there, as we talked about at the very beginning, there are some critical race theorists who would argue that Marxism focuses too much on class to the exclusion of race and that race is the primary category of analysis and therefore Marx has little to offer. Others would argue you can't understand race empirically and historically without looking at it in relationship to class. That's where the Marxist element would come into it. But that's the basic core of critical race theory is it's focused on what we call structural and institutional racism as opposed to what liberals and conservatives like to talk about, which is attitudinal racism. You know, Clyde, I, my feeling about this is very simple. It, it, it feels like climate denial to me. The, the conservatives and the GOP that denied climate change for all these decades, and now look what's happened. Um, you know, it was obvious. It was obvious to me in the 70s when uh, I read about Gaia theory from James Lovelock that I accepted that you know we were affecting the climate to deny that there's institutional racism to to to, to say that that's not true is so absurd that that it's really like denying cl climate change and the results are going to be the same
That's my yeah, point. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, to give you examples of the kind of things that critical race theorists might look at, you know, every month the government releases unemployment statistics. We always know unemployment is lowest among educated whites. It's higher among Hispanics and it's highest among African-Americans, particularly young African-Americans. That's been true since we first started keeping unemployment statistics in the late 1930s. And so what critical race theorists would point out is no matter what we've done in terms of trying to educate people that racism is unacceptable, this is a structural inequality that continues to be reproduced over and over, decade after decade, whether it's in relation to things like unemployment, income levels, wage levels, educational attainment levels, access to higher education, that there are all these sort of structural inequalities embedded in our economic and social system that you can point to over and over and over again. And of course, critical race theory's argument is a very radical argument in the end is, of course, you have to change those relationships, those structures and institutions if you're going to eliminate racism. And we've done very little along those lines. In fact, we seem to be headed the opposite direction right now. We're reinstituting Jim Crow laws through voter registration laws that are being passed in the states right now. Late stage capitalism in America, why would we go down this sort of regressive road again? Why can't we just own up to this, make it better and move on in a you know glorious capitalist fireworks of uh, economic development? What's up? Well, you'd like to hope it's the last gasp <laughs> of, of, of a certain kind of capitalism, but I'm not so sure that it is. In fact, i give you another example. You know, just this week, uh, there was a Supreme Court ruling yeah. uh, which, which completely reverses what courts used to say with respect to voter registration. Under the old Voting Rights Act of 1965, which, which actually was an effort to address structural racism, the basic rule was we don't care what the attitude or intent of a legislature was. If the effect of a law or the effect of your gerrymandering of legislative districts disproportionately affects people based on race, it is racist and unacceptable, right? regardless of what your intent may have been, and therefore you're going to have to change it. Supreme Court just ruled this week, yeah, no, none of that applies anymore. We don't really care if the effect and impact of your laws disproportionately affects African-Americans or other ethnic minorities. It's up to the states to do what they want to do. So have at it, guys. They just gave them the signal to reinstitute Jim Crow at your will. And if it gets appealed to the Supreme Court, we're going to say, don't bother us with this stuff. States' rights. Right okay. back to the antebellum United States. Clyde, is there a schism really developing between that political class of those conservative justices and the conservative politicians and the business capitalist class? We've discussed this before, and let's just talk about this in yep. terms of race. You know, I see the capitalist class, the business class, embracing all races. You know, they, they want to sell whatever they want to sell to everybody. They're not interested in discrimination or putting people down. They want to build everybody up so they can sell more products. It seems like there's a real schism developing here. What's up with this? Well, you know, uh, for most of, of, of modern 20th century American history through the 20th century, there's always been a schism within the capitalist class between what was called its corporate liberal wing and its ultra conservative wing. 
that schism was sort of temporarily repaired during the 1980s when they all moved in an ultra-conservative direction. What it appears to be, and, and let me say that, that that basis of that division within the capitalist class has always been that the corporate liberals have tended to be more uh, very big, you know, S&P 500 corporations, yep. transnational, multinational in their orientation. They tend to be large monopolies and oligopolies. They have high rates of profit. They can afford, in a sense, to give away a little bit to keep the rest, right? Jeff Bezos, he can give away a couple of billion. He's still got 198 billion left. So there's sort of an economic incentive for them to sort of seek to negotiate and compromise with with uh, competing classes. Uh, whereas really? ultra conservatives right. tend to be anchored more in in smaller companies, the so-called petite bourgeoisie, small capital oriented more toward local and and national markets. They've always been anti-government. They've always been ultra-conservative in their views. And so I think what you're seeing is that old rivalry and distinction between uh, these two wings of the capitalist class is starting to open up and widen again. Right. Uh, and even if you look at the capital rioters from January 6th, large numbers of them came from both the professional and the small business class, sort of representative of that distinction, right. and I think that's that's partly what you're seeing. You know, it's it's been it's been very rare over the last century that the ultra conservative wing of the capitalist class has been dominant, except since about the 1980s. It, it may be that the corporate liberal wing is starting to reassert itself. That we've had enough of this nonsense from you people. We need to restabilize the social order because things are getting out of control, and. I give you one example I look to for that, something I recently published. If you look at the Wall Street Journal, for example, prior to 2016, before Bernie Sanders ran for office, in the three years before that, there is not a single reference in the Wall Street Journal to the words socialism or Karl Marx. In the year and a half after Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign, there were about 75 references to socialism and Marx. And by the time uh, a year and a half later, we get to about towards 2020 to 2021, we get nearly 500 references to socialism and Karl Marx. In other words, that word appears in the Wall Street Journal more than once a day now. And I bring that up as, to exemplify that if you take the Wall Street Journal as sort of the voice of the corporate liberal wing of the ruling class, they're paying attention to socialism and most of it is they're worried and they're telling their readers, you need to take this seriously and we need to figure out how to stop it now. And typically the way that wing of the capitalist class puts a stop to socialism is they look for groups they can compromise with, negotiate with, and sort of make some concessions to quiet things down. That wing of the capitalist class is moving in that direction. Give us an example of something that they would do to quiet us down. Well, one thing they would do, I think, is, is sort of try to make economic compromises, you know, improve, improve the schools. Or as we've been seeing with uh, oh, some of the people, was it Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, right, is giving yes. away billions and billions. And, and, you know, my own university now was just a beneficiary of that largesse uh, in terms of a massive infusion of monies to historically black colleges and universities, Hispanic serving institutions. Uh, trying to basically not ha free higher education for all, but free higher education for people attending those 
those types of colleges and universities. Uh, that, that'd be an example. Okay, let's have some final thoughts on this. If you were, Marks, looking at uh, America today with all the issues of race and critical race theory and all the, you know, obviously Black Lives Matter and the policing issue and the voter suppression issue, who's going to win this one? I mean, yeah, he's refereeing this. Karl Marx is sitting over there and has to bet. And he says, you know, I can either bet on the capitalist class winning this one or I can bet on the, the people, if you will, winning this one. Um, and now we have a socialist mayor who won in in, in Buffalo. But yeah. what would Marx? What, where would Marx take his bet? Make well, his bet? It, it would probably partly depend on which stage of his life you asked Mark that question. But I'll I'll take him in his later years when he was a little wiser from political <laughs> experience. And, and his argument was there there are revolutionary upheavals and there are counter revolution responses from the ruling class. And these are cycles that last 30, 40, 50 years. It's a very long process of class struggle. And because it is a struggle, it's it's an open-ended outcome. You don't know. You can't predict with any wow. certainty who's going to win. Either side could win. And the variable here is uh, organization. You know, do, do progressive forces organize themselves at every level of, of social activism, meaning Voting in elections are important, but so are, you know, these large scale Black Lives Matter protests. So is putting pressure on individual corporations and businesses to change their policies. So is culture and ideology, you know, discussing these issues in the media, uh, on the Internet, in the schools, which I know drives the conservatives crazy. Uh, but at every level, it is a class struggle. And it has to be engaged at every level, economic, political, social, and ideological. Wow. Clyde, thank you so much. As always, really interesting. I learned a lot. I hope our listeners learned something. Your knowledge of the contemporary situation regarding what Marx would have done is just extraordinary. I've yet to plumb the depths of something that I didn't learn from you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Listeners. Thanks again for tuning in to Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at ootbwithjrusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, ootbwithjrusso. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.